Good morning. If we haven't met before, I'm Pastor Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. And today I want to start off by talking about dreams again. Uh, Pastor Bob talked about dreams a couple weeks ago in Daniel chapter 2. And so in Daniel chapter 4, we're going to see another dream from Nebuchadnezzar. So I want to talk a little bit about dreams. We had the pleasure last time of hearing Bob interpret some of our dreams for us, right? Uh, You know, some of the subconscious things going on that cause the dreams that we have. And today I want to look at kind of a different perspective, one that comes out of dreams rather than dreams that come out of your subconscious, effects that dreams can have in our life. Because sometimes, maybe you've had a dream that created a particularly strong feeling that caused that whole day to be thrown off. Maybe for good, maybe for bad. But maybe that, that feeling lingered from the dream that you had. Maybe you've, I don't know if you've ever had a dream like that, but I know that I have. A common one that you may have experienced, husbands and wives, is uh, husbands, have you ever woken up in the morning and your wife's mad at you and you can't figure out why? And then you find out it's because of a dream she had? that you did something stupid or mean, and that that's why she's mad at you. I had this happen before, where I've woken up in the morning, and I can just, you can just tell, right? Like, oh, something's wrong. I can just tell that Jill was mad at me for something. I'm like, what? I can't think. What would I have done? Did I punch her in the middle of the night while we were sleeping? Like, what happened, right? And then I, I dig a little bit deeper. Come on, tell me what's going on. And then either she finally realizes it or finally confesses it. She's like, oh, I had this dream last night, and you were just a jerk, and you were really mean, And I know that I shouldn't be mad at you right now, right? Like, you can know I shouldn't feel this way, but it's it's hard to shake that feeling sometimes, right? And I know I've had similar dreams where, you know, in a dream, my wife, Jill, did something, said something that made me mad, and I woke up frustrated with her, and I couldn't figure out why, and then I realized it. But there's times where those feelings can last all day. There's an important point, though, is that it doesn't last much longer than that, Right? I can say for myself, I don't think I've ever had a dream that changed the course of my life, right? That I had that dream and now my whole life is different. That feeling will last for a day, maybe two days, and then it's over. And I think that relates some to Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 4. You think of the movie Inception about dreams, right? The movie starts off with this idea of extraction, right? If you can get in somebody's dreams, you can extract information like the code to their safe or something like that. But then the most of the movie is about this idea of inception. And it's dealing with the question of can you put an idea, if you could get into somebody's dream, could you put an idea in their mind that would change the course of their life? Is that possible? I don't know. But let's look and see how, what that has to do with Daniel chapter 4. While we're on our way to Daniel chapter 4 this morning, though, I want to take some time in the rest of Daniel just to remind you of what's happened. Because by the time we get to Daniel chapter 4, it's really important the rest of what has happened in the book of Daniel. So the book of Daniel starts off with Daniel, this young man and some of his friends. Handsome young man gets taken away from his home in Jerusalem, right? Babylon has come to start taking Israel away into exile, into Babylon. And he's part of this first wave. But he's taken away not as like a forced labor slave. It's actually kind of a cool opportunity for him. He gets to go to Babylon, be educated in the the Babylonian way and learn all these things. And ultimately, through some things that happen in chapter 2, he becomes one of the top advisors to the king. In fact, Daniel 2 is really important for understanding Daniel 4. Because in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Do you remember this dream? He has a dream about a statue. And the statue has a gold head, a silver chest, bronze, iron, iron and clay. 
And the interpretation that Daniel gives shows that, there's, that Nebuchadnezzar is this first, this great kingdom, the golden head, but other kingdoms, lesser kingdoms, are going to come after him. But that ultimately, God is going to destroy the earthly kingdoms and raise up the heavenly kingdom on earth. That's the interpretation of this dream that he has. But what is the response of Nebuchadnezzar? Well, to understand the response that Nebuchadnezzar has to that dream, you have to look at Daniel chapter 3, where I think he kind of reinterprets the dream for himself, right? He's, kind of, he's the kind of guy that says, I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, let this happen to me. I'm going to take fate, destiny into my own hands. I'm going to change what this dream, what's going to happen with this dream. So he builds the statue. But the statue looks a little different, doesn't it? The whole statue is gold. It's like him saying, no, I'm here to stay. My kingdom will last. So he builds this great big gold statue and makes a decree that everyone, anytime music is played, must bow down to it. But you know the story, right? Daniel's friends won't bow down to it. And so they get punished by throwing, be, being thrown into this fiery furnace. But this miracle happens. They don't die, right? They, they come out and they don't even smell like smoke. And Nebuchadnezzar sees this and he gives a response. But the response that he gives is so important to us entering into chapter 4 and seeing what goes on there. I think we often think that Nebuchadnezzar has a really good response at the end of chapter 3. But pay attention to what he does. He says, he makes a decree. He says, wow, that's amazing. And then he, sa- he makes this decree that anyone who says anything bad about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's friends, if anyone says anything bad about their God, they will be torn asunder. They will be punished. But that's all he does. Notice what he doesn't do. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't repent. He doesn't admit being wrong himself for having people bow down to this. He's just like, wow, their God's pretty cool. He saved them. And he kind of adds their God, the Hebrew God, Yahweh, to his collection of gods, right? He's got Belteshazzar. He's a polytheist, right? He's, he's willing to believe in any God that serves to further his plans. And this God seems pretty cool, so I'll add him to my collection. He may be giving some concession to the Most High God, right? But he's not willing to admit it. He's not willing to know him and admit that that is the Most High God. And that's where we enter into Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4 is, is unique. It's, it's, it's important to recognize this difference about Daniel chapter 4 because it's actually in the words of King Nebuchadnezzar. This is something King Nebuchadnezzar wants to tell the people. He has it written down, right? So this is from his perspective. And these beginning few verses have such a contrast to the end of chapter 3 that we go, something must have happened. And he's about to tell us what happened. So the beginning of chapter 4, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and the wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Let me tell you what God has done for me. And then he goes, he says this, verse 3, How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. And that causes us to ask the question, what happened to him? Because this seems like a different king than what we saw just a couple verses ago. Well, he's about to tell us what happened to him. This is King Nebuchadnezzar's testimony that he gives us in Daniel chapter 4 about a, a big change that happens in his life. And it all starts with a dream. 
Verse 4 says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my place. We're going to see a lot of contrast and a lot of comparison to the dream that he had in chapter 2. And here's where we see a contrast. In chapter 2, if you remember, he's a young king. He's out to prove himself. There's wars going on. He's still conquering, okay? And that's, that's why he does some of the things that he does. But now he's in a place of peace and prosperity, We can probably assume from this that Jerusalem has already been conquered and taken. The siege of Tyre is over. He's in his house. Things are good, right? There's there's peace. Maybe a forced peace, but there's peace in his kingdom as he rules over the world. But he has a dream. A dream that makes him afraid, that alarms him. Gives him that feeling. Remember that dreams can sometimes give strong, strong feelings. And he has that feeling after having this dream. And so, what does he do? He calls all of his wise men, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, the enchanters, all of these, to come and interpret his dream for him. Remember, it's kind of funny, actually. This is the same thing he did in chapter 2. And how did it end? They couldn't do it. They couldn't interpret it. He needed Daniel. But he still gives them another chance. He'll give them another shot at it. But once again, they fail. They can't interpret the dream for him. So finally... He brings Daniel. This is verse 8. And at last, Daniel came in before me. And I think this is an important verse for understanding and recognizing Nebuchadnezzar's worldview. Okay? Remember, where, where is he at right now? What is, his, what is his view of God? It says, He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Right? Daniel would not have put it that way. <laughs> he would have said, I can't interpret the stream for you. The Most High God can give me the interpretation for you. And yet, Nebuchadnezzar sees him as this, this, the gods are in him, and he can tell me that interpretation because of that. This is his perspective, his worldview. So he tells him the dream. And this is the dream that he tells him, and we see it several verses here. I'm going to kind of jump through it a little bit, uh, but you can follow along in in Daniel chapter 4. So this is starting in verse 10 says, I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. And the tree became strong, and its top reached the heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. He sees a tree, a ginormous tree, like a cosmic, larger-than-life tree that reaches all the way to the heavens. Now pause there. What is that? What do you remember from that? Reaches all the way to the heavens. Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. There's a connection there. So this tree reaches the heavens. You can see it all over the earth. It's a ginormous tree. Not only that, but in verse 12 we see its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches. And all flesh was fed from it. It's not just a tall tree, but it provides for the whole world, right? This tree is over all the world, provides for everyone shade, food, all of that. We've got this ginormous tree that is over the whole world that provides for the world. But then, something else happens. He sees a watcher, a holy one, come down from heaven. Think about an angel, angelic being, spiritual being that comes down from heaven. And he proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. So this angelic lumberjack comes down to chop down the tree. This great tree, tall, gets chopped down. But it's not the end, right? 
Because he says in verse 15, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth. Don't uproot the tree, leave the stump. Actually put a band of iron and bronze around it. And then we have a big shift in the dream. Pay attention here. You could almost miss it. Look at the words that are being used. Remember, we're talking about a tree. And then halfway through verse 15, it says, Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. Already, you can probably start interpreting this dream, right? Before Daniel even comes and gives the interpretation, you can probably start figuring it out. We have this tree, but now all of a sudden it says him. This tree represents a person, right? A person that will be cut down and, as we see from this description, will live like a beast on the earth. For a certain amount of time, this tree, this person, is going to live like a beast on the earth, And it's a decree of the watchers, these angelic beings, right? The decision of the holy ones. Why? Why is God going to send the angels to do this? Why is this going to happen? They give us it right here. To the end, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Why is God going to do this? So that this person, this great tree over all the earth, will know that the Most High rules over the kingdoms. And the ones he sets over to rule, they're the lowliest of men. So this is his dream. And he says, you know, I told my wise men, they weren't able to tell me what the interpretation was, but I'm sure that you can do this, Daniel. But Daniel, he's, he's a little shooken up, right? He's dismayed. This, this dream has alarmed him. And, and the king's like, hey, Daniel, don't worry about it. This isn't a big deal. You can almost imagine that Nebuchadnezzar is kind of thinking, I changed the outcome of the other dream, remember? I made it my own, and I made it better. I can do the same thing with this one. But Daniel says, my Lord, may this dream be for those who hate you, and it's interpretation for your enemies. Daniel has compassion on the king. He doesn't want this to happen to the king. And he gives the king the interpretation. He starts out just by going through these elements again, this ginormous tree, the leaves, the fruit, all of these things. But then we get to verse 22, and here's the, the shocking thing that maybe, maybe Nebuchadnezzar hadn't put together yet. It actually reminds me of the time when Nathan and David had a conversation after the whole Bathsheba thing, if you remember that. And uh, he tells him a story about a sheep, and then he says, you are the man. And this is Daniel's moment. I think he does it with a little different tone of voice. But he says in verse 22, it is you. You are the tree. O king, who have grown grown and become strong, your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Right? He's telling the truth. Even God will admit this, that Nebuchadnezzar is the ruler of the world right now. Okay? And his kingdom is great. But because he saw, because you saw, Nebuchadnezzar, he's talking to the king, you saw this angel come and chop down the tree but leave the stump. Okay? Um, this is what's going to happen. Okay? Uh, he says here, and, um, he says this is the interpretation in verse 24. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon the Lord my king that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time shall pass over you. 
So he says, this is what's going to happen. That's you in the dream. And you're going to be cut down from the leader of your kingdom. You're going to become like a beast in the field, like an animal. You're going to be on all fours eating grass. Okay? You're going to be wet with the dew of heaven. You're going to be sleeping outside. For how long? It says for seven periods of time. And people get mixed up about this. Right? Oh, is it seven years? Is it seven months? It doesn't really fit. That's not the point. What's the point of seven in the Bible? Complete. How long is it going to take? It's going to take as long as it takes, right? It's going to take until, the, until it's complete, until Nebuchadnezzar will know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. But there's hope. He leaves the stump. Your kingdom shall be confirmed from you for, the time, for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. So when you do repent, your kingdom will come back to you. This is the interpretation of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. Even though he's great, he's going to be cut down, he's going to be humbled to the point of being like an animal living outside, trying to eat grass that he can't digest, right? But Daniel, like I said, he has compassion because he gives him some advice. And I think it's important to pay attention here because think about what's happened to Daniel. Daniel gets taken away from his home. His home's destroyed by this tyrant king. And yet... He loves him. He has compassion. You can imagine that he prays for him. And so he says, Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Turn from your ways. And oftentimes we see in the Bible, dreams are given to give an opportunity to repent, to change your ways. And yet, does that happen with Nebuchadnezzar? The next verse tells us the answer. And all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. No, he doesn't change his ways. But the next verse is very important. At the end of 12 months, a year later, God is gracious, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger, right? He gives him a whole year to repent. But he doesn't repent. And we see this in the next part of the story. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? You can imagine him standing up there on the roof of his palace, which as we know from another story is not a great place for a king to stand. That's where they get in trouble. But he's looking out over this great kingdom and, and let's be honest, he's probably, he, he can probably see the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. He can see the various temples that they built. He can see the wall around the city that was so wide that two four-horse chariots could pass each other on top of it. There's no denying, right? He's great. And yet there's two key phrases in here that he says, right? There is downfall. By my mighty power and the glory of my majesty. Sure, he's a great king, but it's not because of him. But he's not willing to admit that. And so while the words are still in his mouth, before he has even finished speaking, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That 
thing that was foretold in the dream is now coming true. He's going to be driven from his kingdom. He's literally going to live like an animal in the field, like a beast in the field, eating grass, until he recognizes that God is God and he is not. And it happens, and we see that. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He's driven out, he ate grass like an ox, his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird claws. That's an image for you, isn't it? They could have just said, till his hair grew long and his fingernails grew out, but that gives such a much better picture of a beast, right? This isn't just some guy with long hair crawling around on the ground eating grass. That would be weird, but I mean, he even starts to look beastly. His mind is like the mind of an animal. God does this to Nebuchadnezzar until he will recognize that God is God and he is not. But that's not the end, right? You remember the hope from the dream. The stump was left, and we see that happening. And we can even remember, we can even remember Nebuchadnezzar is telling us this story, right? So clearly, there's a change. Clearly, he gets brought out of it because he's able to now tell this testimony to us. Verse 34, at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. This goes back to the beginning of the chapter, right? Something changed, something had happened with Nebuchadnezzar, and now we know what has happened, and it causes him to say this, to pick up where he left off at the beginning of the chapter. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now, Nebuchadnezzar will recognize that God is God and he is not. He is the most high God and all men are nothing. The people that God set over the kingdoms are the lowliest of men. Because it shows how great God really is. And at the same time, his reason comes back. Uh, the glory of his kingdom, his majesty, his splendor, right? His people come back to him. And even, it says, more greatness was added to him, right? He's great, exalted up here, and then he's humbled so low to the point of being like an animal. But then he's exalted even higher than he was before. But his perspective has changed, and he ends the chapter by saying this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I want you to, to think about this for just a moment. One of the most pagan, angry, conquering kings of the world, what did he just say? All of God's ways are right and just. Even though he just spent however long as an animal. And he gives us the whole main point of what he's telling us in this chapter. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And I don't want us to miss the big picture of what's going on in this chapter. It actually comes up, he makes it pretty easy for us, because it comes up several different times in the telling of the dream, in the interpretation of the dream, in what actually happens to Nebuchadnezzar, and then what he says right at the end, right? What is the main point of all of this? Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. But 
we could understand this in not the right way, right? This could easily come off as a moralistic lesson on that we should be more humble, right? Oftentimes, we think of humility as one of the fruits of the Spirit or, or just a, a virtue. Like, it's good to have a little more fruit of the Spirit. And this is just a story about how, you know, Nebuchadnezzar needed a little more patience in his life, and so God taught him how to be a little more patient. But that's not what's going on here, right? Humility is so much bigger than that. And the humility that happens here, just like that tree, is cosmic. This humility goes from, generation, from, from Genesis to Revelation, this humility that he experiences, his pride that he lived with, is one of the basic issues with humans, right? This goes all the way back to the garden. God creates Adam and Eve in his royal image to rule over creation. But when humans rebel against God and make themselves God, they become beasts. And that's what happens with Adam and Eve and every single human after that. Right? Nebuchadnezzar is, we see this theme throughout scripture of these mighty beastly world powers that oppress those under them. And Nebuchadnezzar represents that, but he also represents every human being out there. Because the basic original sin is the same sin that he's dealt with. The basic sin found in Genesis is not recognizing that God is God and I am not. And that's what humans have struggled with ever since the fall, is that we will not humble ourselves before the mighty God and say, you are God and I am not. So this, is so, this chapter represents something so much bigger than just a lesson in morality. This is a truth. This is a posture. The way we live our whole lives, will we recognize that God is God and we are not? So what's the application out of this? Because that's what's important, Right? We could learn something and go, wow, that's really crazy that happened in Nebuchadnezzar. But if we don't take any of these truths into our heart and recognize where it applies in our lives, that we're missing something. So how does this apply to us? It could be easy for us to just say, okay, I, I probably just need to be more humble. So I'll, I'll try hard. I'll do better at being humble. And let's be honest, one of the things we most need in the world right now is humility. And so you could do that. You could try hard to be more humble but I don't think you'd get very far. I don't think you would succeed very well. You see, the problem with trying to be more humble is that it, it, it's kind of a catch-22. Have you ever noticed that? The moment you realize that you are actually doing better and you're like, man, I've been so humble lately. Oh, I just lost it. Just trying to be humble on our own will not work. So, well, we could pray for it, right? Pray for humility, but it kind of reminds me of, of praying for patience. And have you ever heard anybody talk about that before? Have you ever heard somebody say, don't pray for patience? Maybe that sounds weird. But see, we, we often think that God just wants to give us supernatural feelings. And so like if I pray for patience, he's just going to make me more patient miraculously and it'll be wonderful. But what does he often do? He puts us in situations that cause us to be very impatient so that we learn patience, Right? And so you can pray for humility, but I don't know if you want the result of God humbling you like he humbled Nebuchadnezzar. And actually, I think we would be missing something there. Because even though God did a wonderful job at, at, at humbling Nebuchadnezzar, we don't know what happens to Nebuchadnezzar after this. 
right? Now, I like to think that he continued to follow God the rest of his life. We don't know anything. Chapter 5 starts with his son. But what's clear in chapter 5 that Pastor Bob can get to next week is that his son did not learn the lesson from his, that his father went through. This did not pass on through generation to generation. So we could pray for humility, but I think humility comes from looking at what God has already done and understanding that. Because here's what's so cool about this passage here. God does not humble us like he humbled Nebuchadnezzar. We see what he did with Nebuchadnezzar, right? This man who thought he was superhuman became subhuman, right? This ruler of the world, let's be honest, right? Nebuchadnezzar is this great king over the whole world. He humbles to become a beast, like an animal. I mean, look at that humiliation. That's huge. That's that's more than I've ever been through before, okay? But God has chosen not to do that with us. He has not chosen to humble us that way. He's chosen a different route. With us, God has chosen to humble himself. That's part of the mystery of the gospel, right? When we understand that, when I realized this this last week, it blew my mind. God has chosen to humble us by humbling himself. Now, look at the difference, because actually, we see a connection to Jesus and Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, believe it or not, is a type of Christ. He's more of an anti-type of Christ. But they go through the same humbling and exaltation, don't they? The difference is that it was forced upon Nebuchadnezzar, whereas Jesus volunteered to do it himself. But look at the difference between them. Nebuchadnezzar went from being ruler of the world to being a beast like an animal. Jesus went, Jesus who is God, went from being the most high God of all creation, right? The creator, sovereign, almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing God of the universe to being dead. Now let me ask you, what is more humiliating for a king to become an animal or for a god to become dead? God's humiliation on the cross was exponentially more humiliating than anything we've ever understood. And that's why it's so much greater. Philippians chapter 2, Jesus, who counted equality, not a thing, counted equality with God, not a thing to be grasped, but made himself low to the point of death, even death on a cross. Not just death, right? But public, humiliating death on a cross. And he did that to take our place. We were supposed to be humiliated in that, because of our sins, and yet he took our sins upon himself to do that. But he didn't stay dead, right? He rose, and now he is exalted above every name that is named. But guess what he did? In, in being exalted himself, do you know what he did? Ephesians chapter 1, he brought us with him. He brought us with him to the right hand of the Almighty God of the universe. So that means that right now, my position, if you're a follower of Jesus, your position right now is at the right hand of the Most High God of the universe. And let me ask you a question. Does that give you pride? When I realize that, do I walk around going, yeah, I mean, I'm at the right hand of the Almighty God of the universe, so I'm a pretty big deal. No. It's it's the total opposite, right? Because I look at that and I go, I do not deserve one ounce of the honor that comes with that. I don't deserve that at all. And don't get me wrong, I struggle with entitlement, right? I'm sure to some extent we all struggle with a certain entitlement in our life, and yet I don't think I'm entitled to that. And that gives me so much humility to see what God has done for me and now where he's placed me. I could have been a servant in the courtyard of God, and yet he's made me a son. 
and that gives me a great amount of humility. You see, the application that we get out of this is we need humility, right? The only right way to live in the world ever since Genesis for all of eternity is to recognize that God is God and we are not. And one of the biggest issues in the world right now is that most people do not believe that and do not know that, that God is God and we are not. And yet what we don't need is God making everybody into animals for a certain amount of time until they realize that. What we need is what we already have is to look at the cross, to look at what Jesus has done for us. And that's where our salvation is found in the gospel and the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And in that humility of recognizing what he has done, we also find our salvation, our rescue from our sins, and our hope to be with the Father, to be with Jesus for all of eternity. But we need that humility in our life. And so my call to you today is humble yourself before the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you. But this isn't something you can do. is isn't something you just can pray for. This is something you need to look at the gospel. You need to look at God's word and see what God has done so that you can have that right posture of humility before the almighty God of the universe who has humiliated himself beyond belief for our sake so that we could be with him forever. Know these things. Think about these things. And it will work its way into every single part of your life. This is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, is to be humbled before the mighty God. And yet, we are exalted with him. Let's pray. Father, we are eternally thankful for what you did for us. God, that you didn't do what you did to Nebuchadnezzar, that you didn't turn us into an animal to teach us about yourself, Lord, but that you made yourself low, that you brought yourself low to the point of death, even death on a cross, by sending your Son for us. And Lord, I pray that we would understand this a little bit better this morning, that through this we would understand the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for us this morning, and that that would have a powerful impact in our lives, that that would change every part of our lives as we humble ourselves before you. in in joyful obedience to what you have called us to do, what you have called us to be, your sons and your daughters, Lord. I pray that we would realize that, that we would understand it today, and that you'd be working powerfully within us through our humility. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.